2: Hi, welcome to The Guinea Pig. I'm Dr. Mariam Zamani, an oculoplastic surgeon and aesthetic doctor.
1: And I'm Fiona Golfer, a writer and journalist. I'm no stranger to a cosmetic procedure, and I'm willing to try pretty much anything.
2: Which is why I'm here to make sure Fiona, and anyone else that's out there considering a treatment, to help make a better informed decision safely, and to try and collect as much information as they can.
1: Every fortnight, this podcast comes to you from Mariam's Clinic in Chelsea. If you're looking for an honest, no-holes-barred approach to invasive and non-invasive cosmetic surgery,
2: then the guinea pig is here to help you. Hi, everyone. And if you're listening on this day,
1: Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Guinea Pig.
2: I'm super excited to introduce Mr. Nick Parkhouse. He is a consultant plastic surgeon who uh, specializes in both functional and cosmetic plastic surgery, and particularly in treatment of scarring and disfigurement, really. From what I have seen, because we are colleagues also at the Cadogan Clinic, he is often asked to redo or to do revision procedures for various scarring reasons mainly, and has really become and always has been the go-to person for scar revisions and treatments. So I think it's really a great pleasure to have you here today, and also just to gain an idea about your personal approach to plastic surgery in general, as well as what you do initially to try and minimize scarring and how people who do have scarring can help treat their own scars, either with you, with someone else, or what they should be looking out for. So thank you so
1: much for joining us here today on The Guinea Pig. So great to be with you. Nick, it was so interesting when you came in just now, you were saying that there was another famous guinea pig club. Tell us a little bit about
3: that. The Guinea Pig Club was in fact a group of burnt airmen who sustained burns initially in the Battle of Britain and then subsequently throughout the Second World War and who were treated by my predecessor, Sir Archibald Mackindo, at the Queen Victoria Hospital in East Grinstead in Sussex. And basically it was a, a group of these young men who had been burnt in, in warfare, in, all, all in flying accidents or in, in injuries. They had many of them, dozens of operations literally, over, over a number of years in order to reconstruct them. And of course, the huge uh, experience of reconstructing people with bad burn scarring at East Princeton. And so, um, yeah, w- when I came in, I was just wondering whether... The and it's such good a small world that. that
1: you said that because my grandparents were immigrants here. They came to England in 1934 out of Germany and my grandmother developed something called osteomyelitis, which you probably would know mm. about. So she had to have her jaw reconstructed yes. by him. Yeah. So he was a sort of legend in our household growing up because my grandmother was a very beautiful woman and I think she lost half her jaw to this disease and he, you would never have known... Looking at her, she was absolutely kind of flawless, and so that name was a kind of childhood legend in our house. Isn't that funny?
3: Well, that's the sort of story that I heard from the guinea pigs who I only met Mm. uh, in their sort of later life, and they all worship this man, who who not only was a great surgeon and and got a great team around him and trained them, but was also a great humanity, and I think he really knew how to handle the the horror of dealing with Mm. bad scarring which, of course, these these men were left with for the rest of their lives.
1: It's extraordinary. Normally speaking, or medically speaking, how do you define a scar?
3: Uh, scar tissue is fibrosis. It, it is the body's healing response to an injury and we always think of scars in the skin because they're visible but of course scarring can occur in any tissue in the body so internally as well and uh, in in people with with severe injuries after a road traffic accident and so on it's not just the scarring in the skin it's the scarring under the skin and in the muscle layers and so on which causes a lot of functional problems but of course scarring in the skin is what causes the disfigurement that people are often so self-conscious of. Is there such a thing as a good scar or a bad scar? Well, yes, there are conditions in which scarring is particularly bad and it's partly due to the sort of injury. And and so, for example, people with burns, whether they're caused by heat or whether they're caused by these horrific acid burns, which are something I've treated quite a bit of over the years, they form a particularly nasty form of of scar, which is often that sort of thick, lumpy, irregular, sort of almost looks like molten wax that's solidified. Yes, shiny. And shiny and 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 really horrid, and then there are other conditions. There's certain people who form lumpy scars through genetic influences. And so keloid scarring is when you have a scar that just grows and grows, often from something tiny to begin with, just a little skin spot that you you sort of think you might squeeze and can end up forming a scar the size of a field mushroom. Really or some people have a keloid scar that ends up being the size of a golf ball having had their ears pierced, for example. And so that is something there is a bit of a genetic predisposition for that. It's quite common in certain people from West Africa, certain people from the Orient, very Aggressive keloid scars in people from Japan and the Far East can happen just out of the blue as well, and that's something that comes from within and needs special management.
2: So we do a lot of facial procedures here. One of the biggest questions when someone comes in and asks me about a plastic surgeon for you know facelifts is always the scar. No one cares about you know the (laughs) the potential. (laughs) I don't know the facial paralysis that could happen. But it's it's always the scar. Is that so much in the doctor's hands. How would you recommend for somebody who's undergoing facial surgery to evaluate whether they're good scars or not, or what they can do to minimize that scarring?
3: The most important thing in regard to facial scarring is the positioning of the scar. So that is very much operator dependent when you're talking about surgical scarring. And everybody knows about the transverse lines on the forehead, the horizontal lines that everybody gets with age. And uh, But at any age, the ideal line for a scar on the forehead is to have it transversely or horizontal so that it matches the natural skin lines. And the same rule applies to different zones on the face. So, for example, the creases... Um, between the lip and the cheek that slope downwards at 45 degrees. If you can get a scar to lie in that direction, close to that crease, it will predictably heal very well. If, on the other hand, you have a scar that crosses that line or crosses the horizontal lines on the forehead perpendicularly, it will be predictably. A bad scar, it will stretch in width and it'll be thick and lumpy or hypertrophic, as we say. So,
2: what can you do to prevent that? Do you have an injury? Well, that's or... a
3: very good question. In fact, what you can do is an operation which to explain to a patient with a vertical scar on their forehead, let's say, it sounds terrible. What you actually do is you convert that vertical line to a series of tiny zigzags. And so, when I draw them the picture, it actually looks like a sort of a tiny, kind of almost like a trellis pattern. We call it a W plastic because it looks like 20 W's in a row and what that does is to orientate each sub unit of the scar closely to the natural skin lines and it's an operation that we do microsurgically with obviously with magnification and tiny stitches and the extraordinary thing is that the body will heal that scar in a way that it becomes not absolutely invisible, but very difficult to see within a, a short period of time. I'm thinking of one patient in particular who was a prominent model abroad and who had an injury, unfortunately, in a car crash and had a vertical scar on her forehead. And it was the only blemish on her face. And it, it really interfered with her modelling career. But by doing a W-plasty she was actually back doing photographic modeling with the minimum of sort of uh, concealer makeup within um, two or three months. And so how, long,
2: how long after an injury like that can you go back and have a reconstruction?
3: Normally with scar revision surgery the, the normal principle is to allow the inflammation from the injury mm-hmm or uh, from the operation that hasn't quite worked well to settle down for a minimum period of six months and that would be my standard advice to anyone but if you do have a classical vertical scar on the forehead you know that's going to be a bad scar whatever and so as soon as it's healed without infection there is a case for doing an earlier intervention but that there is no doubt that the longer you leave a scar before you try to do a plastic surgical revision, the more predictable is the outcome of that surgery so it's best not to rush into it same on the body same principles apply on the body i mean i can do a beautiful wound stitching on somebody's back but i will warn them always that that scar is going to stretch because scars on the back always widen to a degree and there's nothing much one can do to stop it
1: so can i bringing it back to me which is mm. what i love to do <laughs> on you. this show yeah,
3: well, no, if you me better, it. you'd yeah. know that
1: it is all about me but i had a tummy tuck about eight years ago now and recently and it could be, I keep thinking because I have put on some lockdown weight, but I find I'm getting a lot of kind of spasming across my stomach where the scar is. I'll like, oh, my scar hurts today. What makes that
3: happen? Uh, well, that's an interesting question, especially after that length of time. But any operation like, uh, like a tummy tuck involves obviously cutting not just the skin, but the tissue under the skin, which carries the nerve branches that provide sensation to the surrounding skin. And when you cut a nerve, the nerve will tend to regrow, but it will regrow into the scar tissue that's under the skin. And sometimes the nerves get entrapped. They can become irritated by that entrapment, which can be linked to movement. And they can sometimes form little growths called neuromas, which form really tender trigger spots. And that's something which I'm quite frequently asked to look at and and deal with after other people's operations. What do you
2: do about a neuroma?
3: Well, if you have a well-identified, well-localised trigger spot that's likely to be a neuroma and you can reopen the scar usually the same scar and actually, sometimes actually you see, see the neuroma and remove it and shorten the nerve branch that it's attached to and, and try and bury that nerve branch in deeper tissue it's relatively unusual to do that after a tummy tuck, I have to say but it's not uncommon you know, I've seen people with appendisectomy scars in which they've had neuromas and, and you can deal with it and you know make it pain-free.
1: So the kind of twinging that I would describe it as, could it be either one of my fears, A, weight gain, or B, I mean, I'm not wildly overweight no, at the moment, but not. I'm a little bit kind of COVID chub. And the other thing I thought might
3: be the weather, the cold. Cold weather can affect scarring, particularly in on the, in the extremities. So hands, ears, feet are subject quite often to cold intolerance. So if ever I'm operating on someone's ears, for example, removing a sort of keloid scar that we talked about, I will warn them that they'll probably have a winter season or two of, of sensitive ears. Very often the case with hand injuries, of course, hands have such dense nerve supplies that, that any kind of nerve damage is often quite persistent but again there are things one can do to help with desensitizing massage occasionally exploring for a neuroma but going back to your twinges in scars one of the problems is i said earlier that it's not just scarring in the skin it's scarring in all layers and in fact many women who come along having had a cesarean section or or they have had a hysterectomy scar they often have tethering of the skin to the underlying muscle of the abdominal wall because that is tethered to the deep layer and then what happens is the loose skin and fat over the top sort of flops over it and that gives you the bulge above the caesarean scar that you know many ladies find that they want to have something done about so Quite a bit of scar revision surgery is detethering deep scars, and that applies to big scars like on the tummy. Appendectomy scars are very often tethered because of the sort of wound infection that people often get after an appendectomy, because it involves opening the, the gut to, to do remove the appendix. And even with antibiotics, it's quite common to have a bit of a wound infection, and that then forms a tethered scar that's drawn in. And you can release that tethering and revise the scar and get a much flatter contour by doing a a secondary operation. The other place tethered scars, acne scars on the face often form little pits. Yes. Um, And by doing, again, a microscopic sort of scar revision, I mean, there are various things you can do about about acne involving dermatological treatments to try and prevent it happening. But once the scarring is established, it, it tends to be there forever. Surface treatments can be of help, but they don't help those very punched out Mm. sort of so-called ice pick acne scars. And in my experience, the best way of dealing with those is to remove them microscopically and to stitch the wounds with very fine stitches. What often happens is somebody who's been unfortunate with um, their skin in relation to acne, they come along usually after the worst has settled. So often I'm dealing with people in their sort of 20s, 30s, sometimes older. They're usually three or four on each cheek that are the worst ones and if you can soften those and then couple that with some you know an advanced sort of skin care regime possibly involving a retinoid and combine it with a you know multimodal approach if you like the advanced skin care will not get rid of an ice pick scar whereas really careful surgery getting the direction of the scar in the right skin line absolutely crucial one of the interesting things about scar revision surgery very important for me as a surgeon doing it, to point out to somebody that I can't erase a scar like rubbing out a pencil line on a piece of paper. All you can do is improve the quality of the scar. So it's important to emphasise that to somebody. But if you can get a bit of an improvement, Mm. it is extraordinary how much that can affect someone. And I think very often as some of my burns patients who've had terrible facial burn injuries, um, often involving the whole of their face and neck, and one approach to that is a is a radical approach with total resurfacing which we've done using full thickness skin grafts it's a it's a massive operation and has to be approached very cautiously but the other side of that coin is that by doing little bits to improve areas of tightness where an eyelid is being pulled or the corner of the mouth is being dragged down or the upper lip is is flat after a flat reconstruction, you know, just by creating the dimple, the philtrum as it's called, in the middle of the upper lip, they still got burn scarring, but you are improving their self confidence yes, to a absolutely. huge
1: degree. We had Katie Piper in here. She was so remarkable, wasn't she? she we've is indeed. we've had a couple of really inspirational women in here, but she was Katie was was extraordinary and and I think the work that she had done on her scarring and, and listening to her and how her confidence grew, her Love of beauty, and she's got such a kind of fun approach to makeup and her own self esteem. And we also had another great girl in here, Jo, who had a cleft palate. Is that a very easy thing to treat now?
3: It's pretty well worked out surgery in plastic surgical terms. So, yeah, the results for cleft lip and palate surgery are very much better than they were even in my earlier training in, in plastic surgery. But there will always be a scar. And of course, the scarring in the palate, it has a functional element rather than an appearance element and affects speech and so on. The thing about the Burns patients is that unlike the cleft lip patients, where they form into pretty identifiable groups with mm. very identifiable mm. surgical procedures to do, every Burns patient is different. Mm. And so their surgical trajectory is an amalgam of different procedures done at different times addressing problems. And and, you know, when I take on somebody with bad facial burn scarring, I make this absolutely clear that it's, it's, it's not me telling them what needs to be done. It's them telling me what, what's bothering them. And then we enter into, into a sort of a discussion about how best one can address that with the highest predictability of positive outcome and the minimum intrusion on their life. I've got patients who I've operated on personally 30 times in excess of 30 times before they're 20. Wow. You know, and that's a huge part wow. of someone's life yeah. in and out of hospital.
2: Yeah. The burn victims are always, I think, the hardest to, to sort of deal yeah, with. Yeah,
3: I take my hat off. You mentioned Katie Piper. I mean, I, I think anyone who comes through that sort of injury positively. And it's so often the little thing. I mentioned the philtrum, the upper mm. lip. I had one lady who I inherited from two generations of consultant plastic surgeons when I became a consultant at East Grinstead in the, in the 90s. And she had already had a number of operations, but she was quite reclusive and so on. And she had a completely featureless, flap-reconstructed upper lip. And I made a new filtrum from a composite graft of skin and cartilage from her ear and this lady went off and got herself a job on the till in Tesco's.
1: That was fantastic.
3: And it, it, it just yeah. tipped the balance in terms of the personal confidence that Marion was talking about. Face and the world. Face the world exactly.
1: Can I rewind to skin cancers because one of my yeah. best friends, Australian obviously, and she has skin cancers on her face, but also on her chest, which she has burnt off. She says she has to go, and a cream is applied, and she says it's very, very painful, and the skin cancer is burnt away, burnt away, burnt away, and then it sort of has to reheal itself. Is that typically how skin cancer is treated? I, I,
3: I suspect kinds um, of that um, there, are, there are a number of different types of skin cancer, and it sounds as though she's having... What would be categorised as one of several different destructive techniques, where you never really know whether you've actually got the thing removed fully or not, and they very often can come back. But it may be that she's got a sort of precancerous thing, so-called actinic keratoses, which are all to do with the sun, and they can be treated with a cytotoxic cream or by freezing. People often talk about freezing as burning; it's a cold burn, if you like. And then, as you say, the skin has to heal after that. And then her scars always very shiny. To be honest, the destructive techniques for skin cancers, I mean, that they are appropriate under certain situations, but if it's a properly invasive cancer, my advice to somebody would always be that they're better off having it definitively removed so that you can check that it has been completely removed with a decent margin... Mm-hmm and that the cancer can be processed in the lab so we have a positive diagnosis. If you're treating something with a cream or by burning it or freezing it or whatever, you never really know exactly what it was, and you never know whether you've got rid of it.
1: I might have to send her to you. It's so painful for her. I mean, she yeah, goes I mean, and does that, that, process, that, and it's really, really painful.
3: Of course, people who grew up in Australia, yeah. they're, they're conscious of skin cancers, and of course, Australia led the world in terms of sun protection but they also still have a lot of melanomas that's the nasty form of yeah. skin cancer you should never have a pigmented lesion that is new or irregular treated by a destructive thing it should be removed and and sent to the lab for histology and and then clearance
0: quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side
2: Um, what do you recommend your patients after surgery to use or take or pre-operatively for best scar technique? Or-
3: That's a very good question. I mean, because I think with any surgery, just general common sense, you should be fit and well. And if it's an elective procedure, I would never operate on somebody who was sort of feeling a bit under the weather or ill or whatever. So you'd be well nourished shouldn't smoke beforehand. There's no question that uh, smoking adversely affects wound healing. And so for the majority of, of any major surgery, I would advise somebody to stop smoking for at least three months beforehand. For
1: years, I've used heel gel, if anything's mm. going on, which was developed by Martin.
3: Yeah, yeah Martin who, Kelly, who's Martin a lovely, Kelly. lovely man. He's a lovely um, t- very
1: old teenage friend of mine.
3: Yeah. I think massaging helps scars to settle more quickly, Okay. It makes them feel more comfortable, more quickly, and and it, ideally, I say to people, firm massage twice a day with a moisturising cream or bio oil is the ideal thing. And you know there are a number of different proprietary things that people can use for massaging. I mean, massaging a scar is something I encourage everyone to do. And the other thing is to apply topical silicone gel, which comes in a variety of proprietary brands. And if you do that, you don't use it to massage, you just literally sort of just paint it on the scar and then leave it to dry. That will also help a scar to settle optimally but proving it is very difficult but it's widely accepted that silicone helps particularly with lumpy scars if somebody has a a scar that's a bit red and lumpy or hypertrophic as we talked about earlier then silicone is very good for that and if a scar stays lumpy then there are other things one can do careful injection of minute amounts of corticosteroid directly into the scar tissue can help but that tends to be reserved for people who have problem scars I
1: Marianne with eyes because I've, I've mm-hmm. got friends who've done their eyes as well obviously and sometimes I see that little sort of lump on the corner that they get but is that a scarring well, it thing? From,
2: or? from upper eyelid blepharoplasty sometimes if um, there's been a larger resection the brow part of the skin comes down and that's a little bit thicker in terms of skin quality than the eyelid so until that settles down sometimes it can you can see you might be able to feel not necessarily see like a little bulge but then If you see something down here, oftentimes in the lower eyelid, right, the lateral canthus, you know, you have the scar that can extend outwards. And sometimes you can also have somebody with internal and external scars. And sometimes you can even have the canthus, which is the corner part of the eye, basically sutured to the bone just to support it. And sometimes that area, those sutures that are internally, you can see and sometimes even feel a little ball if they haven't been buried correctly. But usually those are dissolvable stitches so after a certain number of weeks, they they should settle. But I always tell my patients in those instances if they ever feel anything, I always massage. Massage is never bad. I mean, nothing bad is going mm. to come from the massage. But eyes tend to be the best part of the body to heal. So uh, you know, yeah, most people yeah. don't have a bad um, blepharoplasty scar in general.
3: I agree with that entirely. The upper eyelid in particular is a very forgiving area. It just takes time. And it just well, yes. I mean, yeah. I say I tell my patients they'll be wearing eye makeup. um, between the second and third week after an upper blepharoplasty, And of course, that putting it on and taking it off is a bit of massage. Yes. That's um, so
2: interesting. Yes. And anything new happening in terms of injectables for thicker scars, uh, hypertrophic scars, hyperpigmented scars? Yes.
3: uh, Hyperpigmented scars are a problem. And the the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation that uh, quite a few people with sort of mid-skin tone, quite a few people with... um, Indian background or Southeast Asian background can get this post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation with darkening around a scar and it lasts about 18 months typically and it's self-limiting and it's quite difficult to treat because if you start trying to treat it topically with hydroquinones or or with with any form of laser treatment, in my experience it tends to make it worse. You you just have to let it ride its course course. and it's one of the important parts I think of, of any plastic's surgical practice is engaging patients' confidence enough to make them realise that things take time to settle. Some of the worst problems I've seen in my plastic surgical career have been people who've had an operation that could be anywhere on the body done by a well-intentioned plastic surgeon. It's not that bad. The patient is unhappy and around the sixth or eighth week they are desperate to have something done about it and the well-intentioned well-meaning surgeon dives in again and does something far too early and makes things worse and that's as a general principle but going back to sort of what's new in the toy box the answer is that over the last 25-30 years of my practice there have been all sorts of things most of which have been a bit disappointing to be perfectly honest but what I am excited about at the moment is the prospect for benefiting scars by detethering in a minimal incision way, and injecting autologous fat because of the stem cell content. And this is something which is I was a bit skeptical about to begin with because filler injections, ordinary sort of filler injections for depressed scarring basically has been pretty disappointing.
2: Not if you do Um, subcision, no.
3: Even when you do subcision. I mean, I
2: have a a chicken pox scar on my Mm. forehead that I subsized myself, and I put a few drops of a filler many years ago now. I mean, when I first started. And it was the best thing. You know, I used to take it out of every photo, Photoshop it out of every photo. It bothered me so much. It was literally no one could see it but me. But that's all I saw when I looked in the mirror. I mean, but that was very small and it was a very, you know...
3: I I think if it's a a single ice pick scar and the chicken pox ones tend not to have the vertical edges of no, some of the acne have, yes. scars i have to say my experience if you've got a, a depressed tethered scar to try and plump it out by putting dermal filler in without it oh, doesn't I mean, work
2: no it
3: you need it to to one side yeah. or the other i think one of the problems with patients with especially with with bad scars from injuries or whatever they've often had multiple procedures and i'm very hesitant to subject them to things that i'm not confident are really going to be of benefit because mm. they've been been through enough already. So many really.
2: different treatments.
3: And, and, you know, we were talking about the whole psychology of scar revision and the fact I can't eradicate it, but what one can do is to change it. And I think the psychological benefit of, you know, whether it's an operation that, that has been disappointing or whether it's the result of a, a knife attack, some frightful assault or, or a terrible car accident in which, you know, they might have there might have been other people injured or even died, whatever. These scars act as a total reminder of something traumatic. that's traumatic. Yeah. And by changing the scar to something that is is better, but is still there, you can put a stage between the awful event and the so reality true. that they're that's left with interesting.
2: I never and thought
3: of that. It, you know that that's an important aspect of scar revision
2: I also have a lot of patients who come in had breast surgery done whether it's been yeah. an augmentation or a reduction and they have that either around the nipples or just the whole lo- lollipop scar that's really quite widened and uh, I guess they were over aggressively reduced in those situations but how long after surgery can you go back in and try to
3: improve that scar I know exactly what you mean I've seen lots of people with with un, unfavorable breast reduction or mastopexy scars the mastopexy patients the worst ones are the people who have the combined mastopexy and implant done at the same time because you're effectively doing opposite things and they need to be warned about it because if you're both reducing the skin envelope to make it tighter and you're putting an implant in to fill it out yes. and stretch it it's sort of predictable that you're going to end up with more tension on those scars. I think some of it has to do with the way scars are stitched. I mean, you know, I do both those procedures quite often, re- reductions and mastopexies and I stitch in a single layer way using buried stitches that are individually tied so it's 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 more time consuming than doing what is far more commonly done which is a layered closure with continuous stitches where you're running along. I would say that the majority of people stitch in the way that I do don't get Get wide scars. Um, There are a lot of good surgeons out there who who, do, who use continuous stitches and they probably take less time than I do in the operating room. I mean, I think some of my trainees in the past have thought I was a bit old-fashioned doing individually tied stitches. But I see it as couture. It's. <laughs> I, 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 I just I just find I get better wound closure if I if I, if I do it. Well, like it makes that. more um, sense. I mean, that's not I would, something
2: you can go and say, can you please make sure you have individual stitches? I, for
3: don't, I, I <laughs> on my list. You can't. Um, I, I don't think I would want to advise your listeners but to maybe We advise them
1: not to think, but you would advise people not to have a reduction and an implant, maybe to think very carefully about how. Well, I would say
3: it's irrational to have a reduction and an implant, yeah. A mastopexy, which is the skin tightening uplift, and an implant is quite a commonly done operation, and I mean, I'm asked about it quite frequently and I, I would say to everyone having that look that there, there is an alternative way of doing this you have to think of it as a two-stage procedure and I think I'd go so far as to say that everyone should be offered that alternative because in my experience of largely other people's cases who are unhappy with combined mastopexy and implant about 30% of people end up having some sort of adjustment so it becomes a two-stage procedure Mm -hmm. anyway and it to me it makes more sense to look at what the real problem is if somebody's they've just breastfed their third child they've got very empty looking breast skin envelopes that have drooped the best thing to do is probably to do the mastopexy let all that settle and then to do a carefully judged augmentation six months later If, on the other hand, they're not drooping too much, but they are a little bit droopy and they've just got small breasts they want to have made bigger, put the implants in, but warn them that, especially if they're in their sort of 30s, 40s or even older, that they will need to have some sort of skin tightening probably sooner than later. And so it it all comes to managing expectation a bit. And there are some people who say, come on, let's have a go. And I totally accept the fact that the scarring might be stretched, but let's do both together and, and, I, and then we'll revise the scars after nine months or whatever.
1: Given that most women who have a sort of, let's say, a facelift, or I had a lower facelift a few mm-hmm. years ago, because one skin, I'm assuming, doesn't heal as well as the older one gets, and the sort of idea that you do have a facelift as you get older... So what is the sort of healing that you're looking at? Is it harder for your skin? not to scar or, or scar badly as you get older.
3: One of the things that surprises people is that actually healing in old age, so long as you are reasonably healthy and that your cardiovascular system is all right and you don't have a disease like diabetes, which can adversely affect healing and, mm. and predispose to infection and so on, that actually healing in old age can be very good. And in terms of scarring, the sort of scarring you get in your 7th, 8th, ninth decades is much more forgiving than it is in your first, second, third, and fourth decades.
1: That's so interesting. And, why?
3: And well, uh, I can't tell you exactly why, <laughs> but I can I can tell <laughs> you that, that young young people, so people in their adolescent years, when a lot of growth going on, um, they will uh, produce very commonly produce these hypertrophic lumpy scars at sites when you wouldn't normally expect to see them in somebody two or three times their age. The classic operation, I think this really comes, I see it more than than any other, is in people who come along with loose skin and fat on their arms and they become self-conscious of it in their 50s And when they have an operation at that sort of age, very often the scarring is rather disappointing. The contour is better, they have less wobbly bits, but the fact is that the scarring is often visible and quite conspicuous. Do the same operation on a 75-year-old with real sort of, I don't know where the phrase comes from, but bingo wings, Uh, and they will have very forgiving scarring. I was told that, and
1: this is probably just sort of rubbish, but that um, wrinkles have got a lot in common with (laughs) scarring.
3: Wrinkles are produced by the action of muscles on skin. And that's why we end up with the transverse wrinkles on our forehead because of the frontalis lines, the vertical lines between your eyebrows because of frowning. That fascinating reaction that we, our brains are hardwired to interpret that frowny look mm. as crossness or hostility or grumpiness whereas actually everybody does it when they concentrate mm. but there's something evolutionary that we have in our minds that's very difficult to suppress and then the smile lines and lines in themselves give character to face uh, I know Agreed. That, that Agreed. people people Agreed. get very worried about their lines. Yeah. but I think of a, of a patient who I was asked to see who was 103 and wow. who was an actress in the 30s and had several Oscars wow and uh, who lived near where I work in London. And she came in with her carer um, in a a wheelchair. And the photos of this woman in her 30s, unbelievably beautiful. And yet now at 103, she had massive amount of lines, but she was still beautiful.
1: Oh, but I love that. I think there's
3: nothing more and beautiful than a world. Well you know, I think I think phase. it's one of the sadnesses, and this will sound strange coming from a plastic surgeon. It's it's a bit sad that that lines themselves have acquired such a sort of negative energy because they do give expression.
2: I come from a very uh, moley family. You know, my my mother, my actually not my mother, my grandmother has the beautiful. You know, we, I used to kiss them when I was little, and I had a few moles removed just because they just grow and. Uh, one of the things when you have children is you notice, you know, they're so perfect in every single way. You can notice any sort of freckle or mole very quickly because they have no sun damage and, you know, they have that beautiful young skin. When is a good time for children, you know, if they were to remove something? Would you wait and leave something until they're older uh, to heal better? Uh,
3: that's a terrific question. And, and I think that it is part of the age we're in that, you, you, you put it beautifully as a young mother, you look at your perfect baby, with a mole wherever, and you think, got to get rid of that mole. And I think that the important thing is to remember that unless it's something that is, is a dangerous mole and' that's no, it's of course not that's a, a different. Yes. Diag- it's not no. a difficult diagnosis to make usually. I think they're, they're best left unless they're very conspicuous. You know if you've got a, a mole that's sort of halfway around somebody's orbital region, you know, the sort of so-called pandanivus, then that's something different. That, I would say is a, a disfigurement. Even if it's on the middle of the cheek, Do you know I think it's better to leave, to it. leave it until. The wearer of the mole worries about it No, well, he
2: does. He doesn't need to wear glasses. He's wearing glasses to cover up his
3: okay. We've so, been trying to ta-
2: have him take off the And
3: how, his how, how, how old is this particular He's patient? He's 11. He's 11. So I you have to bear in mind that at the age of 11, and this is a conversation I have with people quite often, and this is a boy. Yes, it's on his nose, which is better than his cheek. But bear in mind that if you remove a mole, it's right at the corners, well, if really. you so that that is probably quite a favourable place to remove it. And if he's got really hung up about it, then it's the sort of thing that one could. Talk about removing it. And we bribed I have... him with
2: an uh, eye watch, so now he, he doesn't think about. It. He took off his glasses, so, so I'm, 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 I hope
1: that
2: that was well, the it. That is
3: good management. The other thing is that I do see patients, and and I, I think it's not a good idea for them to have them all. And it's great if you start talking about exactly how you're going to do it, and you talk about the local anaesthetic needle and so on. It's it's very interesting how quickly a young adolescent decides it's something they might do another Later. year. But the other thing to say. this is an important point and I've, i've i've made this point now for many years in relation to the elective removal of moles from boys faces that you know we've talked about the impact that scarring has on other people and if you've got your 13 year old boy who's got a mole in the middle of his cheek that he hates perfectly reasonable he doesn't like it fast forward you have a 24 year old with a big scar on his cheek. Now, we look at a young male with a scar on his cheek in a way that isn't always favourable, and the presumption that people subliminally make is not that this youngster had a mole removed when he was 13, it's that he's in some way... Gets into fights, into trouble, and you know, a young mother at a bus stop will take two steps backward from a young man with a with a scar on his cheek. It's different for a girl or a woman. I tell parents that when you know, it's 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 really quite common for boys are far more often far more self-conscious than adolescent girls are about their appearance. They get really strung up about it, and so it becomes an important part of the sort of the doctoring, if you like, to make both. The parents and the boy understand the very valid reasons for not doing it. You know, if that boy then goes up for a job that is is public-facing and there are 30 other candidates and he's sort of, you know, 23, Absolutely. he's not going to get the job. The ones without the scars will. Sadly, there is no surgical way of erasing a mole or erasing a scar you can only you know produce a a scar that's as good as it is but it's still a scar
2: very interesting the psychology of scars is a whole topic on its own
3: (laughs) i I don't think you can talk about scars or consider scars without talking about the psychology and that goes for the whole gamut of cosmetic plastic surgery too i think you would agree i
1: have to say on the upside is that i find men who've got the scar on their lip from a cleft palate i find that quite sexy just putting it out there <laughs> <laughs> always have so thanks for sharing for yeah me. <laughs> there are a lot of actors who have yeah. got there are quite those a few of of and, I, and i'm a fan of nearly all of them <laughs> on that note i just want to say thank you so much thank for you talk. that thank was you absolutely so much. gripping
3: pleasure Thank you very, very much. Very
1: interesting. Thank you. thank you for coming on The Guinea Pig. You can't wait to listen to us now, can you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and thank you guys for listening. Please don't forget to stay in touch over Instagram at The Guinea Pig Podcast and on email at TheGuineaPigPod at gmail.com. Bye.
0: The Guinea Pig provides unbiased information to those who may be considering cosmetic surgery or even trialing a non-invasive treatment or product. We do not endorse the use of any product or procedure featured in this podcast and are not responsible for the outcome of any of the treatments featured on this podcast or damage caused in connection with any treatments or products. Should you decide to try any of the procedures, treatments or products mentioned in any episode of The Guinea Pig, you do so at your own risk. Always consult an independent and fully qualified medical professional if you are considering embarking on a medical procedure irrespective of whether it's an invasive or non-invasive procedure.